Hello and welcome to Seam Red. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. And this week our script has been written to us by a listener. So thank you, Daniel Kay. Yes, a huge thank you to Daniel for all of his hard work on this fascinating case. Before we begin, we'd like to say a massive thank you to our newest patron supporters. Yep, so we have Kiri Geeves, Sally Coleman, Graham Charman, Joanna Miller and Martha Carl. Thank you to each and every one of you and of course to all of our existing patron supporters. Honestly, it just makes a massive difference to us, doesn't it, Beth? Yes, it does. And it's it's delightful. So thank you so much. And I'm so grateful to you all that I'm going to ignore that Mark called me Beth. That's how grateful <laughs> to you all I am. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, if you want to join these guys, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And uh, there's loads of exciting stuff going on over there. So do check it out. So thanks to Daniel Kay, this week we are going to be talking about the acid bath murderer, John Haig. This is a case I've known about for a long time, but one I've never fully learned the facts of, so this is going to be a great episode. It's a weird one, this, because I, I've heard of the acid bath murderer, never heard of his name, and I know nothing about the acid bath murderer, so I'm really interested to find out about this, and I'm loving that Dan Daniel has written this for us. Uh, a listener yeah so I think it's going to be a fascinating case for sure definitely I used to hang out with a guy when I was in school who said that it was like a great uncle or somebody knew this person and you know when you're like are you just bullshitting me or not and I wish I was still in touch with him now to kind of get in touch with him and be like were you just lying at school or have you got some inside goss that awkward conversation no I was just trying to impress you Please let us know your thoughts on today's episode in all of the usual places. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram. You can also email us at info at seeingredpodcast.co.uk. And um, also, if anybody else, because we've had a few people write a script for us in the past, if there are any budding true crime writers out there, or if you want to have a go, then uh, then by all means, get in touch with us. We, we would love to hear from you. So to begin, Daniel's painted us a picture of London setting the scene for this week's case. It takes place in the 1940s with a backdrop of the country at war. London had been a dangerous city for a long time. It served as a draw for the most undesirable kind of people. And whilst Jack the Ripper has always been infamous, he wasn't the only murderer in town. The police had their work cut out for them, attempting to solve crimes without the technology that we're so lucky to have at our disposal these days. The police were aware of Haig. He was a petty criminal. And he was well known. John George Haig was a man who could get you anything, despite the fact that rationing persisted in Britain for years after the Second World War. But nobody was aware of the real reason behind his expensive way of life. The police had no idea what they were about to learn when they took Haig in for questioning in 1949 in February as part of their investigation into the disappearance of an elderly woman. Haig, on the surface, a respectable, well-dressed, middle-class guy with an abundance of charm, is responsible for one of the darkest and most horrifying mass murders. In the late 1940s, he murdered at least six people in a way that led to his being dubbed a vampire. This already sounds... I I just honestly knew nothing about this. This already sounds like it's going to be a pretty gruesome episode as well. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Haig lured his victims to a fate where their blood was consumed before they were dissolved in acid, but his motives for carrying out these acts remained kind of unclear. There's some things around this, but he never really said for sure. His assertion that his strict religious parents troubled him as a child, um, he said that this caused him to develop a schizophrenic state of mind fascinated with religious iconography and sacrificial fantasies, but that's been refuted. Instead of being driven by insanity, critics contend that Haig was a cold-blooded killer who naively assumed that the absence of a body meant there was no crime to be charged against him. 
And we talked about this reasonably recently, didn't we? About people thinking if there's no body. Did we talk about this? I feel like we did. I think this is either a dream you've had or a chat with another true crime fanatic. What about your episode recently with the guy who tried to use acid, but he failed? I'm sure we talked about this. The fact that some people do think that if there's no body, well, I can't be convicted. And it's like, well, no, you definitely could. And there still may be evidence. Totally. Dennis Nilsson's a great example as well. So a serial killer, I think it was in the 80s, targeted men from the gay community. And he um, he would sort of boil their body parts up and then flush it down the toilet. And it just caused much more of a trail of evidence than if he'd just probably left the bodies where they were or dumped them in a in a wood or something because they the drains got clogged up with human bones. So Oh um, my god. Yeah. Yeah, these people aren't mm. as clever as they like to think they are. No. Okay, so let's get back to Daniel's episode. The so called acid bath murderer, John George Haig was an English serial killer in the 1940s, although the term serial killer didn't come into use until much later. Although he claimed to have killed nine individuals in all, he was found guilty of the deaths of only six. He didn't actually murder his victims with acid. Instead, he used it to dispose of their bodies in what he thought was a surefire way, dissolving them in pure sulfuric acid before selling all of their goods and kind of making large sums of money off them. It became clear during the subsequent inquiry that Haig was using the acid to dismember the victim's bodies because he misunderstood the meaning of corpus delecti. So he believed that if the victim's remains couldn't be located, a murder conviction would not be achievable. Despite the lack of the remains of his victims, the strong forensic evidence allowed for his conviction of the killings and his eventual execution. I do feel that's quite rare back then, though. So this is, what, 70 plus years ago. And I almost felt that this. being able to charge somebody and find them guilty without a body, I thought that was kind of a new thing or quite a recent thing. So it's really interesting to know that 70 years ago, that was still it was still possible to charge somebody and bring them to justice, even with the absence of a body. It's a really odd one, isn't it? Because there are still cases now where people haven't been charged because there's no body and so they can't be. But there are definitely cases where people are in prison for murder And they say they're innocent and there's not been a body and there's people who refuse to give up the final resting place of their victims. And yeah, it's a really fascinating sort of element to the true crime sort of in general, isn't it? It is. And psychologically, and I always preface that with the fact that I'm not a psychologist, obviously, but we all love having a bit of a go at amateur psychology. I wonder if this strong desire to dispose of the victims post-mortem Yes, that's to try and ensure that he gets away with the crime. But I also wonder if there's an element of regret or guilt that comes to the surface. And if I can dispose of what I've done, I can erase it from my mind and forgive myself. Oh, see, that's really interesting. I think potentially um, with other people, but I think with this guy, it was purely hide your tracks. Yeah, Genuinely practical. do. I think it's yeah. practical. But that's a really interesting way of thinking about it for other cases. So originally from Yorkshire in England, John George Haig was born on the 24th of July, 1909. There was no indication of any mental illness in his family, but his mother, Emily, claimed to have had severe anxiety during the final three months of being pregnant with him. And he was her first and only child. She was actually 40 years old when she had him. 
John Robert Haig had been her husband for 11 years when he was abruptly let go from his position as a foreman in an electricity factory and the family's finances were severely affected as a result. They kind of felt it was very shameful that they had to borrow money. So that's going to be something that was kind of really from his early years and his formative years. That's something that he was really aware of. So Haig's first victim was his former boss, a man called Mac McSwan. The pair reconnected at a tavern and they began spending a lot of time together and even spent some time with Mac's parents. When Mac's parents opened up to Haig about some investments they had, he couldn't help himself from plotting. So without knowing it, this couple had given Haig knowledge that would determine their futures. After spending several weeks interacting with Mac, Haig decided to carry out his plan and he struck on September 9th, 1944. So it's from Haig's actual diary that a lot of the information comes. So he wrote in his diary that he struck McSwan over the head with a blunt object because he suddenly felt the desire for blood. He then cut Mac's throat and he wrote in his diary, I got a mug, took some blood from his neck, put it in the mug and drank it. Oh God, when I said it was going to be gruesome, I -hmm. couldn't really envisage that. That is, yeah, particularly vile. Yeah, And a short while later, Haig got hold of a 40-gallon barrel that he used. He placed McSwan's body into it and then added sulfuric acid to it. So in a similar note to our season eight opening episode, Haig wrote in his confession that the fumes overpowered him and he had to go outside for air once the body was ultimately doused in the liquid acid. What was our opening episode? So it was your guy who... Stefano um, Brizzi. Yeah, Stefano Brizzi. And do you remember he'd like, he kind of was... The smell was like horrendous coming out of his house. Because it doesn't stop the decomposition of the body. So um, the smell, all of that stench will will still be there, even though the body is is in acid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that kind of also reminded me a little bit of, um, do you remember the episode with Colin Howell, the dentist? And when he was trying to gas both his wife and his lover's husband, um, he'd after the second time he'd kind of gone outside and he was choking as well. And again with with this guy with Haig, I'm like I've got no sympathy for you. <laughs> I don't care that you're choking no. on the fumes. No, because with Stefano Brizzi, so uh, the opening episode of season eight, as you mentioned, um, with, with that one, he um, would have had to heat the chemicals to 300 degrees in order to successfully dispose of the remains. So again, that if he'd actually been stupid enough to do that, he would have blown himself up. And again, I don't really have any sympathy with these people. You can't. Yeah. Later, after leaving his old boss and what should have been his friend to dissolve into a liquid sludge, he covered the drum and went back home to sleep. So it's said that Haig experienced more bizarre, bloody nightmares during the night. And I'm not really surprised. Yeah, I don't think the brain is really equipped to deal with what you've just done and to process that. So Mm -hmm. you're going to have some fucked up dreams for sure. The next day, all that was left of McSwan was a few lumps and a frigid liquid, which Haig dumped into a sewer. Haig was in a state of pleasure. He knew that he'd killed someone and destroyed all evidence of them. And Haig was successful in then persuading McSwan's parents that their son had left home to avoid being drafted. Even false postcards from Scotland were sent to them by the man who claimed to be their son. However, acquiring the other McSwan assets was Haig's major priority at this point. The rest of the family needed to be taken care of too. So with the inclusion of new tools for dealing with dissolving bodies, the following murder would be perpetrated. Haig's grotesque workshop of death included a stirrup pump, homemade tin face masks and even a steel bath that had been coated to make it more corrosion resistant. A police report claims that before beginning his plot to brutally dispose of the rest of the McSwan family, 
Haig had also killed a middle-aged Hammersmith resident. So um, that's somebody he claimed to have killed um, in between. So between McSwan and then his parents. Do we know much about that and why? No. And I think a lot of the stuff with this guy was he kind of would say about things and he wanted infamy. So Mr. and Mrs. McSwan, Mac's parents, vanished on July the 2nd, 1945. They died tragically, much like their son. So Haig claimed to have drunk their blood after murdering them. And he said he then dissolved them in acid baths. Haig had all of the McSwan's mail, including Mr. McSwan's pension, sent to him after informing the landlord that the couple had emigrated to the United States. And then he then started to sign a power of attorney form, pretending to be their son. He made approximately £2,000 from the sale of property that belonged to Mrs. McSwan by faking the deed and using it under a fictitious name. And so the sum of that, securities, and some of their assets that he sold came to £6,000. That's a serious amount of money for back then, isn't it? I think you could buy a semi-detached house for a few hundred quid, so they were clearly a wealthy couple. And I think this is it. They'd kind of talked about, not bragged about their assets, but they talked about things and he just had that greed in him. He was like, right, let's get this. Haig was able to defraud people using a long variety of tricks, such as masquerading as a liaison officer, handling patents and establishing fictitious branches in many places. Around this time, he also allegedly confessed to killing and disposing of a young guy called Max from Kensington, again, according to a police report. So it's just another person that he says he's killed. And Haig wanted money from fresh victims because the McSwan's loot was quickly running out. He picked Dr. Archibald Henderson and his wife Rose. They were a more cosmopolitan pair and they were selling their house. Haig forged a bond with the couple via their love of music and persuaded them to divulge information about their houses. Haig rented a storage unit on Leopold Road in Crawley, London, and he set up his obscene workshop there after moving his belongings. This time he requested two 40-gallon barrels without caps and three sulfuric acid carboys. He drove Dr. Henderson to Crawley on the 12th of February 1946 and he actually used Dr. Henderson's own handgun to shoot him in the head. He then went and got Mrs. Henderson, left kind of Mr. Henderson's body in the cupboard and took her to the storage sort of locker thing, despite apparently some resistance. So he tied her and her husband's bodies and shot her from behind, tied them up and then left them overnight. And later he again told the authorities that he had drunk the blood from both of them. Part of me, because we'll probably never know whether he actually did drink the blood of his victims, and part of me again wonders if he's trying to create this narrative of this vampire persona because that's going to get column inches and notoriety and that's what he wanted all along. Potentially an insanity plea. If you talk about things like this, yeah. Yeah, true. Haig submerged both corpses in acid, but unlike the last instance, Mr. Henderson's foot was left unharmed. Haig threw all of the remains, including the foot, into the yard's corner. He was kind of seemingly unconcerned by this. So obviously he, but by this point, kind of believed he could escape capture, but it seems very strange that he wouldn't think to himself, do you know what, I need to make sure that's dealt with too it seems very odd doesn't it it does and i suppose well he's probably gotten away with two murders at this point at least well three three yeah, sorry mac and then both his parents yeah he 
He thinks he has. And this other guy in Kensington. So mm-hmm. And he, potentially another one before. Yeah. yeah. So there's, there's multiple murders that he's gotten away with. And I think that would have just emboldened him. And I think human nature is you just become a bit lazy if there are no consequences to certain actions. So he probably thought, well, it's fine. I'll get away with it. Yeah. And it took a lot of planning and time to kind of keep up the appearance that the Hendersons were still alive. Haig even wrote a lengthy letter to Rose Henderson's brother using a fake Rose Henderson signature. He then made about £8,000 in selling their belongings in their houses. And he even handed some of Mrs Henderson's clothing to his girlfriend Barbara, which just creeped me out that she potentially was walking around wearing the clothes of his victim and not realising. That was probably done from a practical perspective, though, not yeah, not in that he was getting honest. off on it, just that I've no. got some some rich woman's clothes, she's cosmopolitan, you're going to look good yeah. in them, here's you a treat. Nice in them. Yeah, definitely. And he even kept their dog, which I thought was a bit harsh. Mm. But that keeps up appearances, doesn't it? They've gone away and they've left me their dog. Yeah, and also at least, at least he didn't shoot the dog. We've seen that multiple times, haven't we? Yeah, that's something. Um, So unexpectedly, Rose Henderson's brother did actually want to call the police. He didn't believe that letter that he'd received. He didn't believe that the Hendersons, he thought that something had gone on. But Haig was finally able to kind of persuade him that actually the couple had moved to South Africa because Dr. Henderson had performed an unlawful abortion. And he basically managed to convince Rose's brother that that's actually where she was. Which is believable. So Haig had plans to visit the mother of a recently departed school classmate who he'd seen in the obituary section of a local newspaper. He undoubtedly intended to get rid of the distraught mother and steal what he could. But when the weak woman unexpectedly passed away herself, his plan was thwarted. Haig's spending, which included staying at a posh hotel and his excessive gambling, led to his money running out once again. But whilst he stayed at that very fancy hotel, he socialised with a woman called Mrs. Olive Durand-Deacon, which I love her name. She was a wealthy elderly woman, and of course he plotted murder to get rid of her as well. Haig reported his car was stolen in June 1948, but the Lagonda was discovered shattered at the base of a cliff. A body that was unidentifiable was discovered nearby less than a month later, and the police kind of concluded there were no connection between the two incidents. And actually, even after being arrested, Haig continued to deny any involvement with that body. Um, He took his girlfriend Barbara to the location where the Lagonda had been written off, telling her he needed to collect the auto insurance. So I'm not really sure what that had to do with it. I guess the police kind of may have thought that the body was somebody that he'd driven somewhere and tried to dispose of. But he kind of always said that it was nothing to do with him. Which it, it may not have been. His, no, his motive doesn't in, match the rest. No, his motive in dry, well in pushing this car off a cliff was to claim the insurance because he's running out mm-hmm. of money. So, yeah, I can't see that that body that body could have been something separate. Uh, I can't quite see how that fits into to what he was trying to achieve there. No, interesting though. And Rose Henderson's brother was back on the scene because they had a family death and he needed to get hold of his sister to tell her. So he was then once again trying to get hold of the police to find his sister. Um, He believed that she'd gone to South Africa, but he needed to let her know about this family death. And so this was kind of like another thing that Hager had. You can imagine him thinking like, oh, it's just another problem for me. Another thing I've got to deal with. I was just thinking about it. He was like, oh, for fuck's sake, just fuck off you again. Yeah. Olive Henrietta Roberts Durand-Deacon, otherwise known as Olive, luckily, the rich lady mentioned previously, was the last victim of this serial killer. 
Described as a kindly and talented lady, Olive was the widow of a war hero and she had actually been an active suffragette in her day. So a really quick aside, Olive, I was looking up all of the information about her because I thought she sounded so cool. She once spent a night in the cells after throwing a brick through a window and she was like properly a suffragette that was like campaigning for oh, women's I love rights. It. I love it when there's mm-hmm. a, a, an element of non sort of personal human violence involved and people start <laughs> yeah. bricking windows in the name of their cause I mean I do and I don't love it but I love that that was probably 100 years ago and and yeah women were not allowed to behave in that way and she's like fuck it mm-hmm. yeah I love it yeah so this was a respectable lady in her late 60s by the time her path crossed with Haig she was also incredibly rich and she was delighted to talk to Haig. He told her he was an inventor and she shared an idea that she had been toying with of her own. So Olive, I think this is really cool as well, she had the idea of producing and patenting artificial fingernails. So this was 1949, it was the post-war period, women wanted a bit of glamour and you think nowadays people always buy fake nails. This she is was mad. ahead she, of her time. She should have well, I'm guessing she didn't get the option to patent that, but geez, she would have made a shitload of money. However, you're right, because Haig used this conversation to entice her to his workshop, but this was his creepy garage, the garage where he'd murdered others and the garage in which he then killed Olive too. He shot her in the back of the head, removed her fur coat and put her body into a barrel of acid as well. And he then took Olive's best friend to the police station to report her going missing because her friends and family were getting increasingly worried. However, good police sergeant on the desk, she became suspicious of Haig's apparently jaunty manner. The police began to look into Haig and soon uncovered a number of worrying facts. Not only had Haig sold Olive's fur coat not long after she'd gone missing, detectives also searched the workshop and discovered papers that were pertaining to the Hendersons and the McSwans. They then had to investigate the sludge, which must have been... A horrific job and three human gallstones were discovered and basically the pathologist was kind of having to go through that sludge to see what it was they realized it was human Haig was questioned and actually he kind of tried to interrogate the police as well himself because he asked how easy it would be to escape from Broadmoor and he kept on asking them loads of questions I'd be like don't don't assume you're going to Broadmoor mate we've not mm-hmm. found any signs you're mentally ill this is it. Already at that point, he's talking about mentally being mentally, found mentally ill. Like, isn't that really interesting? So eventually, he admitted to all that he had done. He told detectives that he'd not only murdered Olive, but also the McSwans, the Hendersons, a young man called Max, a female from Eastbourne, and a woman from Hammersmith. Barbara Stevens, Haig's partner, the woman he'd intended to marry, was the only person, except his parents, who was profoundly affected by the revelation that Haig was a cold-blooded mass murderer. She actually frequently visited him in prison in an effort to discern the character of this man that she had been seeing, and she questioned whether he meant to kill her. Apparently, the sincere response from him was that he'd never considered the subject. (laughs) I mean, probably because she's got no money for him to steal. Well, I was going to say, it does seem that these crimes, these murders were purely financially motivated. So what what was in it for him to kill her? Yeah. And she'd stuck by him for five years, fully intending to marry him. Haig had managed to compartmentalise his life to such an extent that she had no inkling of the dark side of the man that she loved. She admitted later in life that had she ever found out, then the chances were he probably would have got rid of her as well. Or, potentially, if she'd ever become any sort of hindrance at any moment, she may have met a similar end. So I guess she was quite grateful that actually she wasn't aware of this until he was arrested. 
because she could have could have been at risk. Haig didn't seem to feel any regret and he seemed to enjoy sharing the details of his gruesome exploits and they were reported in the media. Haig's case was strictly monitored and so for this reason forensic examination was set to collect more evidence. Although the acid had removed a lot of evidence, not all of it had been erased, the forensic team dug through the tons of mud and sludge and they found horrifying artefacts like bones and dentures To protect themselves from the acid, they had to put on rubber gloves and coat their arms in Vaseline. And they discovered things that will just make you disgusted. So here's a list of what they found. 28 pounds of human body fat, three gallstones, part of a left foot, 18 fragments of human bone, upper and lower dentures, the handle of a red plastic bag and a lipstick container. Despite the forensic evidence, Haig's own sense of invincibility and his hubris proved to be the biggest factors in the jury's decision to convict him. Haig firmly and in great detail described his adventures because he believed that nothing could be recovered from his human abattoir. It was a corpus delicti situ- It was a corpus delicti situ- <laughs> Sorry, Ben. It was a corpus delicti situation in his opinion and there were no bodies, so therefore no crime and therefore no punishment. According to him, obviously, this isn't the case. Well, yeah. But to him, that was what it was. And on July the 18th, 1949, 4,000 people flocked to the tiny town of Luz in an effort to gain a seat in court. Because Haig lacked the funds to pay for his defence, the News of the World newspaper struck a deal with him and agreed to foot the bill in exchange for an exclusive. And in addition, the newspaper The Daily Mirror was held in contempt of court for emphasising Haig's vampire status. Sylvester Bolam, the editor, received a three-month prison term and they had to cover court costs of £10,000. So he's really trying to push this vampire thing, isn't he? And Haig pleaded innocent. The prosecution rested its case of premeditated murder, committed with intent to profit, and the defence made an attempt to rely on the question of the defendant's insanity. So he outlined for the court how the defendant's mental disease would have impaired his capacity to understand the morality of his actions. But Haig's attempt to hide his crimes was proof certain that he knew what he was doing and that it was illegal in the eyes of the law. And that kind of caused the defence to crumble. And I think that's what has been the undoing of people, other people in the in the past who have tried to claim that defence of insanity. When you forensically examine what they've done it's quite obvious that they had a very well-functioning brain that was in control of what they were doing. Yeah, exactly. It was purely just that his sanity needed to be kind of determined. The psychiatrist for the defence was actually unable to demonstrate that Haig's judgment was hampered. And it seemed he was kind of using Haig's initial inquiry about being let out of Broadmoor, this kind of insanity thing. Haig Haig was trying to find what would get him off the hook. Despite his confession, Haig did not anticipate being accused of murder for two reasons. So, like we said, he asserted his insanity and he believed he'd be exonerated of the murder allegation and sentenced to life in a psychiatric hospital jail like Broadmoor. And he also believed that if the body wasn't discovered, he couldn't be charged with murder. But the body wasn't required because there was still this volume of tangible proof. The, The sludge contained a lot. Well, yeah, exactly, like you've listed it all. And also, who says Broadmoor is going to be a lot better than an actual normal prison? I think it probably could be worse. And I think with him as well, he's got this idea of of what he wants, but really, what he wanted was money, and he wanted to make as much money as possible off all these people. 
Yeah, clearly, because he had that uh, extravagant lifestyle that involved gambling and staying in lovely hotels. Sounds great. It does, apart from the murder. According to the prosecution, he was just a man who, having found the ideal crime, killed someone for personal benefit and then pretended to be insane once he was arrested. And I completely agree. It was up to the jury then to determine whether paranoia qualified as a mental disorder or flaw, and they reached a decision in under 15 minutes and found Haig guilty. When Haig was asked if he had anything to say on his own behalf by the judge, he answered nothing at all. So even though there are some unspoken problems, he had to answer for the harm that he caused to so many people's lives because murder is murder. And the judge gave John Haig the death penalty and donned his black cap and the sheriff's chaplain replied, Amen. Two different medical examiners further observed Haig in Wandsworth Prison following his trial, but they found no indication of his insanity, and they perceived him as shaming. To be sure, the Home Secretary then ordered an issue for special medical examination under the Criminal Lunatics Act of 1884, in which Haig's case was thoroughly studied by three renowned psychiatrists. Everyone thought that Haig was faking illness. He did not have a mental illness or a defect that would absolve him of moral culpability for his deeds. There was no justification for kind of changing that death sentence. For the newspaper that had funded his trial, Haig completed the account of his life and he also sent letters to his parents and poor Barbara, his girlfriend. He hoped to meet them again in paradise. His elderly parents did not go and visit him before he passed away, before he was executed, but his mum did offer her condolences via a reporter. Haig stated his belief in reincarnation and assured Barbara that he would return because his duty had not yet been completed. Mm, that's rather worrying and threatening. I know, poor Barbara. Yeah, looking over her shoulder for the rest of her life. To see if he comes back as like a wasp or something. As some other fucker, yeah. <laughs> Haig's last few days were spent kind of attempting to keep control of his life and how people saw him. He'd have his barber come into the prison to cut his hair. He only stopped receiving visitors when he had to start wearing prison clothes. And he even welcomed Madame Two Swords into his cell on the afternoon before his execution. And they took three hours creating a life mask for the wax model that they then put up the day after his death. Wow. It was even wearing the clothes specially chosen and donated by Haig himself. God, I mean, he was reveling in this. He really, really was. And they're kind of like doing it what he wants as well. They're all doing what he wants. Yeah, and the news of the world, I mean, again, we've covered the news of the world numerous times. They're shits, and so are bloody Madame Two Swords for doing this, really, as well. It's not, it's just not tasteful. John Haig remains in the public eye in a special exhibition at the Museum of London where a collection of grisly relics are open to the public view from New Scotland Yard's infamous Black Museum. The gloves and apron that Haig used to protect himself from burns from the acid are on show together with Mrs. Duran Deacon's gallstones and dentures and the revolver that he used. Oh, that's horrible. I've been to the Museum of London. I don't ever remember have seeing you? any of this, but I wouldn't have been looking out for it. So, yeah, brilliant museum. I'd recommend it. Oh, I'll have to go one day. So, Daniel's ended his script. And I'm, I'm not happy, Daniel, with you because this is not a very Bethan ending to the episode. There's no happy thoughts here. So, Daniel's ended by saying, There are still some human-looking monsters which exist today. And those monsters are following the same path which was initiated by serial killer and murderers like John Haig. 
It it fits so well, though, with the episodes we've featured so far, I think, because when we look at the Stepping Hill hospital poisoning, which we covered last week, again, these people are hiding in plain sight a lot of the time and getting away with awful things. And the case that I'm going to have for next week is very similar vein to that. So, yeah, it does. You can't end it in a good way because it does allude to the fact that there are lots of people out there that are capable of these awful crimes and we don't know. Yeah. So there we go. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Daniel, for writing the script for this week's episode. Much appreciated. And we've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back with another case next week. So we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.